search everything these days, and guess what? Some people have done the work, and they've come back with a report. They now know the top two lies people believe about Jesus. Can you believe that? They research everything. The top two lies people believe about Jesus. Well, we'll talk about Jesus today, and we'll address those lies here on the program. You're listening to Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Faith is the place where we challenge each other and stretch each other. Faith is the place where we believe we want to help each other have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. In fact, that's my working definition of faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I'm so glad you've joined us. We do these programs every week to try to help you, to try to help all of us grow together and get stronger and more confident, more grounded, you might say, in our confidence in God. And we want to have faith in Him because faith is what pleases God, and we want to please God. Well, I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Most people refer to me as Pastor Rick. We're just a regular church with uh, people like you. We're trying to do the best we can, and I'm grateful for our church for a number of ways. They stand up when some other churches would step back, and I, I mean that very sincerely and very seriously. In these days when too many churches are willing to, to step back or to step aside or to bow down to, our church stands up and says, no, we're the people of God. We're going to step up. We're going to defend what God has given us. We're going to speak out for that which is right. We're going to be the kind of people God wants us to be. And we're not going to apologize for it. We're not going to be obnoxious about it. We're just going to be resolute in trusting Him. And that's what we want to do. And that's what we hope you will do as well. So here we are on the fourth weekend. We're going to be celebrating the fourth Sunday of Advent. And I think we ought to go back and review so many times I'm always amazed. Every year I'm amazed. We start out on the first Sunday of Advent, and I think it's going to be a long time till we get finally to Christmas Eve and Christmas. But then every year, lo and behold, here we are on the fourth Sunday already, and it seems like the time just flew by. Well, let's review a little bit so we know where we are. On the first Sunday of Advent, we remind ourselves of the prophets. And if you use an Advent wreath to help you celebrate, then you would have lit the first candle that remembers the prophets and the hope, because the prophets gave us hope. Hope that if we will repent and get right with God, then there's a future and a hope for us, and hope that one day Messiah will come. And so we have hope because of the prophets. That was the first Sunday. Second Sunday was Bethlehem and peace. Bethlehem, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. That's an obvious connection. But let's remember that peace, as the Bible talks about it, isn't simply the absence of conflict. Peace is a, the blessing we wish for one another for total well-being in our lives, that all of our life would be properly ordered and in place, and we would have peace. So the first Sunday was prophets and hope. Second Sunday was Bethlehem and peace, or shalom. And the third Sunday was shepherds and joy. Well, the shepherds rejoiced with exceeding great joy when they left the stable, the same way the wise men would later when they found Jesus. But the shepherds were really glad. They were glad for what the angel had told them about, and then they discovered that it was true. And in these days, joy is a little bit on short supply for some people. Some people look around and they say, well, what do I have to be joyful about? Well, let me give you a little clue to that. 
If you look around and ask yourself the question, what do I have to be joyful about? You will always come up short. Because if we want to look for reasons to not be joyful, we can find them. You may know people that they always find a reason to spoil something that's otherwise quite good. So we want to think about joy a little differently, not based upon the circumstance that we observe, because we can observe them however we want to. But think about joy. Remember we talked about this, that joy is a defiant nevertheless. Karl Barth told us this. Joy is a defiant nevertheless, no matter the circumstance. We're going to look around and we're going to say joy is ours because we have confidence in God. We have absolute confidence in his trustworthiness. And so we have joy, a defiant nevertheless. We'll have joy no matter what because we know better and we know whatever's happening is not the end. And we know in the end, everything will be fine. So if it's not all fine by circumstances yet, it's not the end. But we're still going to have joy because we have that defiant sense of God ruling and reign over, reigning over everything, and we are not going to back down. Well, we're at the fourth week now, and typically we remember angels and love. Angels and love. Now, angels play a pivotal role in the story of the coming of Jesus. They do other things in the Bible. You've probably read about that. We understand that. And somehow we connect them with love because of the message the angel gave to Joseph, the message the angel gave to Mary. And it communicated a sense of God being involved in things and demonstrating his love. Well, I don't think I have ever been visited by an angel. If I have been, I didn't know it. I didn't recognize it. I don't necessarily expect to ever be visited by an angel. Maybe you have been or maybe you do expect that. I think with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the role of angels may be a little bit different now in our world, but let's not get off the track too much. Let's talk about this idea of love. Love is something that people talk about a lot, think about a lot, uh, obsess about a lot maybe. So let's think about love just a little bit. And, and my reason for thinking about it is to ask you, how do you define love? Now, we use love in all kinds of ways in our world. We love our cars, some of us. Um, there are things, and I'm not going to name them, that people love to hate. Well, that's kind of weird, but you know what I mean by that. But how do you define love? I'm frequently fond of saying we love pizza, but that's not the same as we love our children or our grandchildren. How do you define love? Now, it's not that easy to define love. I will grant you that. And, and a lot of people will come back and say, well, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it, or perhaps I know it when I feel it. Well, okay, but no, that's no definition. That's just recognizing the difficulty of defining it. A few years ago, I came across some really interesting work that was done by a man named Scott McKnight in his book, A Fellowship of Difference. And in that book, he spends quite a lot of time discussing the idea of love. And it's not that easy to define. It is possible to wrestle with it. And if you want to know more about that, I recommend Scott's book, A Fellowship of Difference. But I want to suggest that there are two rules because these are the rules he gives us. If we're going to define love and help ourselves with it, these we need to think about it through the lens of these two rules. First of all, he says, do not define love by looking up love in a dictionary. 
Well, that would have been most of our first choice, right? Go look in a dictionary and see what they say. Well, probably what you will find if you look in dictionaries, and I didn't look in a bunch of dictionaries to prove this, so you might find something different. But probably what you will find is an emphasis on feeling, some kind of emotional response or affection. And certainly that's part of our concept and understanding of love. I'm not disagreeing with that. But if you want to understand love as God introduces the concept to us, and as God is, you know, we're fond of saying God is love. So if God is love, and if we need to understand love in a correct, helpful sense, then we certainly need to look someplace other than a dictionary for a definition of love. So don't go to the dictionary. Rule number one, do not define love by looking up love in a dictionary. Rule number two, define love as God defines it. This is what Scott McKnight suggests. Not in a dictionary, but define love as God defines it. How? By watching God love Israel, love his son, Jesus, and love the church. In fact, you can extend that to say, well, we can watch God love the whole of creation and understand what he means when he says love. So I challenge you, as you think about love and as you think about that this week as we pass through this fourth Sunday of Advent, think about how God loves Israel, how God loves his son, how God loves the church, in fact, the whole of creation. And think about this. As you ponder it, see, a lot of people, they, they want to run away from God because they don't want God telling them what to do or what to avoid or anything like that. But if you look at the Bible and if you look at the way God expressed love toward his people, the way Jesus expressed love, the way Jesus understood the love of God, the way the church understands the love of God, you will quickly discover that one of the ways God loves people is by telling us what to avoid and what we should be about doing. So he tells us what to avoid. He says, stay away from sin because sin is bad for you. A lot of people think God just wants us to avoid things we enjoy. That's just baloney. By, by the way, that word baloney is a deep theological term. If you haven't heard it, you need to consider that one. God shows his love by telling us that we need to avoid sin because sin is bad for us. But he also tells us what we need to be about and what we should do. And so we need to think about that. So when God says to his people, here's something you should do, like, for example, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that is something we should do. When the Bible says, don't have any other gods before me, God speaking of himself, then we should remember that God is supreme and nothing should rival God's place in our lives. So see, God defines love by how he loves his people, his son, the church, the whole of creation. And one of the ways is by telling us what to avoid, and one of the ways is by telling us what we should do. I hope some of that makes sense. I don't know that that's the whole definition of love. And, and to be sure, uh, Scott McKnight goes into it in great detail in his, in his book. And that's why I recommend, if you want to know more about that and, and kind of follow along his argument, pick up a copy of his book, A Fellowship of Difference, and you will discover in those pages that there are some really quite fascinating things about love. 
maybe some things you hadn't even thought about before related to the concept of love. Well, most of the time I want to spend today going through what we do every year on the fourth Sunday of Advent, the Sunday before Christmas, and that we at our church, we have a festival of lessons and carols. This is a, a service that's been around for a long time, started years ago in England, and still goes on today. It was started back, way back then, way back, uh, if I remember right, in the 20s, I think, maybe before that. It was started by a guy who wanted to do something different, something innovative for a worship service. And uh, I'm always amused when I read that and remember that because in my lifetime and probably in yours, we've seen churches try to do some different kinds of things with, um, with worship services, what we might call innovative things. Well, they, they did that back then. Now, this service of lessons and carols almost feels formal by the way we tend to think of things and do things these days. But in those days, it was meant to be innovative. The idea caught on, and it really remained mostly unchanged since they started it. It's, it's used in a lot of places around the world. They've gotten reports from many places, and I'm sure based upon those reports and where they've been from, people have adapted it to their setting, to their culture, cultural preferences, their normal way of doing things. Uh, it's, that's just what you expect out of something like this. And so we have ad- adapted it for ourselves as well. The idea behind the lessons and carols is that there are nine scripture readings. That's what are called lessons. Nine scripture lessons, you might say, from the Bible. They trace the story of God and his people, God coming for his people, from Genesis all the way through, using a few highlighted passages of scripture that are meant to to help us make connections to other things. You can't tell the whole story, it'd be impossibly long if we read all of the important Bible stories, but it's designed to help us make important connections. And so we want to make some of those today as we go through here. And it's designed to help us reflect on the story of what God has done for us. And the fact that these lessons have remained mostly unchanged all this time is really quite remarkable. We use the lessons that that are traditionally used for the service of lessons and carols. We've always done that. It just seems right to me. We we adapt the music. We don't use the same music that they would use in the cathedral in England. That's not what we do, but that's not the point. The point isn't that we have to do everything the same. The point is that it helps us think about some important things from the Bible it helps us remember the story of what God has done for us. It leads us in the way we need to go <coughs> and guides us along the path that we want to walk. So what I want to do is I want to read the scripture passages. Some of them are quite short. Some of them are a little longer. And I want to reflect on them a little bit and use those as a way to revisit the Christmas story, the story of God coming in a little bit different way that might give us the opportunity to think a little bit more carefully about some of the things we need to not forget and make sure we emphasize. So the first scripture lesson comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, the updated edition. If you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to, or just 
allow the words of the Bible to, to soak in. Sometimes it's just as good to listen and let them impact us. So Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pangs in childbirth exceedingly great. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. I'm sure you have often noticed that there's an awful lot of impactful information in the story that starts out with Genesis 1 and continues here to Genesis 3. I sure, I'm sure it hasn't escaped your notice that in all of that scripture, God only gave them one command. Here's a tree. Don't eat from it. You can have everything else, but not this one. And yet, that's the one they ate from. And in eating from that, they sinned and broke their relationship with God. And it had many consequences. Now, one of the things that occurred to me as I was thinking about this passage is that it's quite interesting who Adam and Eve, and those are the two people mentioned in here, who Adam and Eve listened to. Well, in the first part of the passage we read, Adam heard God walking in the garden. So he was aware that God was around, but he hid himself. Because he knew, he knew he had done what he shouldn't do. We often hide ourselves from God when we know we've done wrong. You really can't hide from him, so we ought to knock that stuff off. But, but then you notice that as God pursued this and found out what was going on, he, he found out that, that the woman, Eve, had listened to the serpent and eaten the fruit, and Adam had listened to Eve and eaten the fruit. Well, I don't think it's helpful for any of us to say, well, Adam shouldn't have listened to Eve. 
I don't think any of that's helpful. I think what's really important is to ask a few questions. And one of those is, why didn't they listen to God? The implication, clearly, the, 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 the setting is that they had walked and talked with God in the garden. It wasn't unusual. And yet, why didn't they listen to God when God said you can have everything else but not the one tree? Well, probably we could answer that in a lot of ways, but let me have you consider this. Why didn't they listen to God? It's because they believed the lie they wanted to believe. Isn't that what goes on in our world? We want to believe something, so we look around till we find people that will tell us what we want to hear. That's what goes on occasionally, I'm afraid, in some churches where they tell their pastor, you can talk about this, but you don't dare talk about that. They want to hear what they want to hear instead of hearing everything that God has to say. And I believe and hope that there are hundreds of pastors out there that that proclaim the whole message of God and aren't intimidated by that. But I know that there are people in our world that, that they want to believe what they want to believe, even if it's not true. The second thing that really stood out to me as I looked at this was, was notice that, that Eve listened to the serpent, Adam listened to Eve, but they didn't listen primarily to God. So the question for us is, who do you listen to? Who, who do you listen to? You know, when I need something done, some work done, or something that, that I don't know how to do or don't want to do, then I will ask around and listen to my friends who will say, well, this company does a really good job, or that car repair shop is really good, whatever. I listen to them, but then I have to decide, from all of my friends' feedback, who do I believe? Well, see, that's more important in life when we think about the important things of life, the important things of, of right and wrong, what God says to do and what God says not to do. The important thing is, do we believe him? So you can listen to God and not believe him, or you can listen to somebody who tells you about God in a way you want to believe. But really, when it comes down to it, who do you believe? Do you believe God? Do you want to know what he has to say? And then when he says it, do you want to believe it? Or do you want to argue with him? Well, good luck with that. I don't think he minds our honest questions. But at some point, you have to decide, are you going to believe him? So that's the first lesson. second lesson also comes from Genesis, a little later in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 15 and ending with verse 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. Well, in the same way that Adam and Eve did not obey God's voice, here we have God saying of Abraham that he obeyed his voice. This is, this is the end of the story of Abraham offering Isaac to God. I know that's a story that causes a lot of people great discomfort. Who would imagine that God would ask Abraham to give him 
the son and to sacrifice him. In the context of covenant, it's not so difficult to believe. In the context of the Bible, when it tells us that Abraham believed God could give him back his son from the dead, it's not quite so difficult to believe. But what's really important is that God takes seriously when we believe him. In Genesis chapter 15, when this whole covenant idea started, it tells us that Abram, before his name was changed to Abraham, Abram believed God. Well, and now here it says that Abraham, as part of the covenant now, this is sometime later, Abraham believed God. And Abram, at the covenant cutting ceremony, acted on his belief in God, and it formed God's covenant people. And now God has reaffirmed his statement. You believed me. You trusted me. You haven't withheld anything from me. And I will indeed bless you in a way you can't quite imagine. So that's the introduction kind of of the story of the development of the people of God. And then we go to lesson three. The third lesson is from, from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Again, from the New Revised Standard Version. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Great will be his authority, and there shall be endless peace. For the throne of David and his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, this is a very famous reading, really popular during this time of the year from Isaiah. And it's really Isaiah telling us that one day Messiah is going to come. Talks about a child will be born, a son given. He will have authority on his shoulders. It describes him by name, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It says again that, that he will have great authority. And it says there will be endless peace when he rules. And he will rule from a throne like the throne of David. He will establish that kingdom with justice. Now, how many people think about a king establishing a kingdom with justice? Most think of him establishing that with power. But here, very interesting, God says that Messiah will come and he will be established with justice and with righteousness. Notice how many times in the Bible justice and righteousness are mentioned together. And this will continue onward forever. You see, when Messiah comes finally to establish his rule and his reign, that justice and righteousness will continue forever. It will not end. And, and we should not rush past that. So we started out in Genesis thinking about Adam and Eve eating of the forbidden fruit. They were told, and, and God had warned them, and because they did what they weren't supposed to do, God had to deal with that. And you read, you heard me read what he said to them about the things that would happen, both to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam. He told them that they would 
wrestle with life in a sense until they died and then they would be returned to the dust of the ground from which they were formed because they listened to the wrong voice and they believed a lie. The second lesson, God is meeting with Abram, now Abraham, and says to sacrifice your son, the son of promise that I promised to give you. And and Abraham, he just believes God and, and does it. And God says, wow, wow, you do what I say, don't you, Abraham? And God blessed him. And the covenant people, God's covenant people, have been a blessing ever since. They've been the target of many attacks, but don't you think that many of those attacks are a result of them being a blessing? People haven't been too happy with that, apparently, but they were a blessing. And then Isaiah gives us this very vivid picture of a child being born, of Messiah coming, and of one day establishing his throne forever and ever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So God is eager to establish that throne. And that throne will be established on justice and righteousness, not on power, not by might. Generally, we see the people who sit on thrones changing places based upon who's most powerful and who can put the other people down and in their place so they can rule. But Jesus will rule because of justice and righteousness. Well, we're going to take a break in a minute, and we've already talked about a couple of lies that people believed about God back when the serpent said to them that that they would be like God if they ate the fruit, and they did, and we didn't read all of that. But we're going to continue, and we're going to continue through the next lessons in this festival of lessons and carols, and we're going to reflect on those as we go along. And we'll finally, we'll end up with the two top two lies that people believe about Jesus. I think you might be surprised. Certainly, I hope you're you're cautioned to get it straight. So let's take a break. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and by the time you've refreshed yourself, I'll be back. Well, you're hearing the news about the convergence of influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, and now SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, hitting at the same time in some households. Uh, Most of these conditions are mild, but they are bothersome. People have fever, cough, congestion, uh, respiratory symptoms, and one of the best ways to safeguard your home is with the Genesis Fogger. The Genesis Fogger uses HOCL, that is a safe disinfectant. Uh, It is virucidal. It kills the virus in the air and on surfaces. It creates a dry mist. You can use it to sterilize certain rooms, sterilize bathrooms particularly, and I think every household should have it. So go to America Out Loud, website, go to the banner bar and click on Genesis Fogger to get a discount on your purchase. And you're going to need it because the first purchase involves the uh, unit itself. And then you'll get a box of the liquid that's used inside. It's diluted in water. And that's basically the supply. And you're given a a, a real good number of bottles that'll last you a long time. But go ahead and pick up the discount on the first purchase when you go to our banner bar on America Out Loud. And that's the Genesis Fogger. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. 
Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan, a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. We're back. That was pretty good timing, wasn't it? You're ready. I'm ready. We're about to continue on with our lessons and carols. Well, no carols. I don't think you want me to sing to you today. But we're going to talk about these lessons that are part of the service of lessons and carols and and reflect upon what God is saying to us through these scriptures. And, and then we'll end up here in just a little bit with this discussion, or I want to introduce you to the what some people have discovered were the top two lies people believe about Jesus. So we've started in Genesis, a couple of places in Genesis, and talked about Adam and Eve and how they messed up. And and I didn't mention it then, but I'm going to mention it now, that in those verses contained the first prophecy of the coming of a Messiah. Many people mark that as the first one where it says that that um, the enmity will be between the woman and the her offspring, where it says, he, the offspring of a woman, will strike your head, meaning the serpent's head and you will strike his heel. In other words, the serpent, Satan, in this passage, will tempt and bother people, but Messiah will come along and inflict a a deadly wound. A wound to the head of a serpent means they're dead. Striking the heel of a person means they're tormented. God is saying, one day, God's going to come along, put an end to you, and you won't torment people anymore. So now the fourth lesson This one is also from Isaiah, chapter 11. I'm sure you will recognize some of this. Chapter 11, starting with verse 1, continuing through verse 9. Again, still from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge for the poor and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. 
The calf and the lion will feed together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I'm sure you recognize there are a lot of things we could talk about here. From the idea that Messiah would come from Jesse, and he did. We can trace that genealogy all the way through. From the idea that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, we wouldn't have doubted that. A number of things, though, that we might not think about. Notice that it says, He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. Verse 4, But with righteousness... He shall judge for the poor and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. So, so when the Messiah, the king, the, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, comes and rules and reigns, he will reign with justice, not based upon what somebody whispers in his ear, not based on what he sees, but it will be completely righteous judgment. That's remarkable, isn't it? But then I want to call your attention to the, to the end of this. And it says, For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Full of the knowledge of the Lord. I was thinking about that. What does it mean for the earth to be full of the knowledge of the Lord? See, those are the kind of questions I ask myself when I, when I work on sermons, when I work on this program. What does it mean for the earth to be full of the knowledge of the Lord? We don't think about knowledge of the Lord as something that would fill up space. Well, granted, this is interesting language and poetic in form, descriptive that way, meant to fire our imagination. I understand that. But I also think we miss something if we don't wrestle with this idea of what it means for the earth to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And, and a beginning answer has to be that what we've read in these verses before, that statement, which is made in verse 9, that's describing what it will be like when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. There won't be wolves attacking lambs. Leopards in the same way with the, with the kid, with the young goat. They won't be attacking. Children, children playing around the hole of a snake, yet they won't have to worry about anything because they won't be harmed. Verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. So this idea of to be full of the knowledge of the Lord has quite far-reaching impacts. Quite far-reaching impacts. And we need to we need to consider that and imagine a world like that. Would you like to live in a world like that? Uh, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That's just remarkable. There won't be any worry about your kid going out and playing. You don't have to worry about dangers from wild animals for your child, or, or, or the animals don't have to worry about anything from each other. They will not hurt or destroy, verse 9, on all my holy mountain really quite remarkable. 
No danger there because the whole earth will contain the knowledge of the Lord. And the knowledge of the Lord apparently leads to a peaceable kingdom. You've probably heard that phrase before as well. Well, let's go ahead to the fifth lesson, lest we run out of time here. Fifth lesson comes from Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26, continuing through verse 38. Same English translation, New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, The child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. So all that the scriptures before this had been telling us would come to pass is now coming to pass. All of the imaginative ideas of what it's going to be like for a kingdom to be ruled by Messiah is now starting to unfold. And I would go back to this idea of listening. Did you, did you notice that Mary was listening to the angel? The angel said, don't be afraid and gave her the information she needed, and Mary was really quite taken aback by it. I think there's little doubt about that. Finally, she came to understand because the angel said nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary listened to the angel. The angel was there on God's behalf, sent by God. It says that clearly in verse 26. The angel Gabriel was sent by God, sent to Mary specifically, And Mary listened to God's message and consented. Now, we started out by asking, who do you listen to and who do you believe? And Abram, later Abraham, believed God and God blessed him. Covenant people were formed. And now here's Mary, who is about to take a pivotal role in the fulfillment of all that the scriptures had been pointing to up to this time. And Mary listened and consented. She believed God. That shouldn't be overlooked. We should not forget that. We should make sure we we take that to heart. Sixth lesson comes from Luke chapter 2, verse 1, ending with verse 7. New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place in the guest room. Well, that's the story. That's the familiar story. We don't really hardly need to think too much about it. We do know from other parts of the scripture that Joseph also listened to the angel and believed God, and, and so they fulfilled their part in the coming of Messiah, key, pivotal roles in that. And they ended up in Bethlehem because of the decree of a governor. And it shouldn't go unnoticed, I think, that more than once in the Bible, God used a government to accomplish something that he wanted to bring to pass. You see, they went to Bethlehem because of a government decree. And I know a lot of us are fond of, and rightfully so, of being concerned about government and what it tells us we must do. But there is a biblical role for government, and we should be willing to consider that and to accept that. We don't need to consider any more than that or less than that. But here, government decree leads them to Bethlehem, where they fulfill the prophet's message that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Seventh lesson comes also from Luke and continues the story with verse 8. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Now in that same region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. Wow! Guess who the shepherds heard? Guess who they listened to? They heard the angels announce God's message, and they listened to them, and they went and they found Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? What a great bunch of guys that must have been. But did you notice it started off with them being terrified? And there was good reason, because if the shepherds were in the place that I visited on shepherds' fields in Bethlehem, right outside Bethlehem, they would have been trapped in a cave-like carve-out in the side of the hill. And they could not get away from the angel. So no wonder they were terrified. Not only would most of us be terrified of an angel, but they were trapped, likely, and couldn't get away. But they believed what God said. Do you believe what God says? They went and they found the Messiah. Eighth lesson, Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. 
In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east and have come to pay homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and learned from them the exact time the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen in the east until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Well, this is quite a fascinating part of the whole story of the coming of Jesus, the story of the, of the Magi or the wise men from the East. And they probably were part of the company of, of wise counselors that served in the Babylonian royal court. We know a little bit about that from the book of Daniel. Daniel and his buddies from Jerusalem were taken to Babylon and were instructed in all the language and literature of the Babylonian court. In other words, they were taught so that they could be wise counselors to the king. That was part of the spoils of war, their labor, their capabilities. And so this idea that these magi or wise men that came from the east came from that area and may have inherited some of Daniel and his guys knew isn't too far off. I don't know that we can prove it. I've not seen any proof of that, but it's really fascinating. And so you ask yourself some interesting questions. Why did a star lead them to the conclusion that a king of the Jews had been born? Well, we know that the Babylonians from the wise men and what Daniel and his buddies learned, we know that they studied the stars and the movement of the stars. It was probably best understood from our perspective as a mix of astronomy and astrology. They really believed that the events in the stars could tell them what's about to come, and there would be certain predictions of bad things to happen or good things to happen based upon the stars. So it wasn't just astronomy in terms of studying their placement. They believed there was meaning behind all of that. And you have to ask yourself, how did they ever have the idea that there was a king of the Jews born? Where would they have even got the idea to look for it? Now, clearly, they saw something in the heavens, something in the stars that indicated that, that something was up. They observed his star, and, and they knew something was going on. But where did they get the idea? Who were the wise men listening to? Well, again, we can't prove it, but they come from the area where Daniel and his buddies were taken. And I just wonder, and people have speculated on this, and I just think it's fascinating, I wonder if 
Daniel, having earned respect in the royal court, and he did, had the opportunity to teach them about his God and to teach them that Messiah would one day come. And maybe they listened to him and started watching for that, and that's why that star made such a difference to them. They were listening to Daniel, and God spoke to them through Daniel's testimony. And they also clearly, there's one last statement in what we read, and having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now, we know that the Babylonian royal court wise men were very conscious of visions and dreams, And so here God used something that they were likely alert to, to warn them. And so they listened to the voice of God and did what God said. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? Very remarkable, I think. Very remarkable. That brings us to the ninth lesson and the final lesson in the series of lessons out of the Festival of Lessons and Carols from John chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overtake it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. This has got to be one of the most familiar passages in the Bible. Maybe we use it at this time of the year more than any other time of the year. I don't know. But it certainly fits here. And it's a great conclusion to the scripture readings, the lessons from this festival of lessons and carols. It talks about how Jesus came talks about how John was sent and that people needed to listen to the voice of God and listen to the testimony of John. And I started out earlier on asking, who do you listen to? Who do you believe? And clearly, God intended for us to listen to the voice of John the Baptist, to believe him, and then even more to listen to the voice of Jesus and believe him. And it's quite interesting, all of the information we have in this few verses, 1 through 14. But I said we'd talk about two common lies people believe about Jesus, so let's just put those out there. Lifeway Research came up with this and discovered that the most common lie that people believe about Jesus is that Jesus is not eternal. Now, when we say Jesus is eternal, we mean that he has always been and always will be. 
And so right from the from the beginning of this passage of Scripture, right from the beginning of time, in the beginning was the Word. And, and when it says the Word here, the Word was with God and the Word was God, that is a reference to Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word, which means Genesis opens with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, in the beginning, before that took place, there was Jesus with God. But a lot of people are not so sure about Jesus being eternal. And yet this passage reinforces that over and over. So if you struggle with that, let me assure you that there is every reason to believe that Jesus is eternal. And when people try to tear that down and say, well, Jesus was created by God, that's not true. Jesus was there from the beginning when all of creation was formed. The second lie that's really common, which this one kind of makes me more concerned than the other one, but people will say, Jesus is not God. But Jesus made that clear in his testimony when he was on earth, and the Gospels are quite clear about that. And this passage is quite clear, too. Uh, he, he is simply the embodiment of God. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he is fully God and fully human. And I know that's not always easy to wrap our heads around, but that is what the Bible says, that Jesus really is God. And for people to say, well, he was a great teacher or a great man, all that's well and good, but it's not the whole story. It's not really the truth, because Jesus definitely is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right there, it's clear as could be. The Word was God. Who do you listen to? Who do you believe? This is the Word of God from John chapter 1. I encourage you to believe that. Jesus truly is eternal. It's a lie to believe he isn't, and Jesus truly is God. It's a lie to believe he's not. Well, we've covered a lot of scriptural ground, all the way from Genesis to John, all the way from the promise of Messiah to the reality that Messiah has come, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or lived among us. Or another translation say he moved into the neighborhood. Well, this week, let him move into your neighborhood. Let him move into your life. Believe in him. Give allegiance to him. Walk with him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll be back next week with more.